0: Today's episode is brought to you by Claire Fuller's Bitter Orange, which NPR picked as a best book of the year, hailing the novel as a finely crafted psychological thriller. The devilish novelist gives us a sunny, summery, open backdrop that nevertheless becomes a vice, tightening around the throats of both the main character and the reader. And the Paris Review writes, Page by page, Fuller enchants us with prose as thick as clotted cream, only for us to realize too late that she's been ensnaring us at every turn. Bitter Orange is just now out in paperback from Tin House Books. I'm excited to share with you my conversation with Zadie Smith, but before we begin, I wanted to alert people who are listeners, but not yet supporters, that for the new season, we have refreshed the various gifts and incentives available. You can still get Ursula K. Le Guin conversations on writing, prints from Whitman Illuminated or Moby Dick in pictures, but the Tin House featured new release is now Hanif abdur poetry collection, A Fortune for Your Disaster. We've also switched out the four books for the next shipment of those who become Tin House early readers, receiving 12 books over the course of a year months before they are available to the general public. And for those yearning for an addition to their tote bag collection, we now have a sporty Tin House tote bag that you can get with three back issues of the Tin House magazine. Or perhaps you are a new or long-term supporter who simply wants to show your support. Either way, you can learn about all of this and more at patreon.com slash between the covers or at TinHouse.com slash support. Enjoy today's program.
1: These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us.
0: I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world.
1: I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that.
0: You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story.
1: had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition, was working at a vet, and kind of lint-rolling puppy hair, and cat dander off myself.
0: They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still, and you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to like put their fingers in the wounds, in the
1: silences.
0: I believe in the role of literature as a a catalyst for dialogue
1: and and, and new forms of of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain and it's put on spin.
0: Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is the novelist and essayist Zadie Smith. A graduate of Cambridge in English, Smith's debut novel, White Teeth, won the Whitbread First Novel Award, The Guardian First Book Award, The Commonwealth Writers' First Book Award, and was included on Time Magazine's 100 Best English Language Novels, published from 1923 to 2005. Her second novel, The Autograph Man, won the Jewish Quarterly Wingate Literary Prize for Fiction. Her third, On Beauty, won the Orange Prize for Fiction the Commonwealth Writer's Best Book Award, and was shortlisted for the Man Booker Prize. Her novel NW was shortlisted for the Royal Society of Literature Andadje Prize and the Women's Prize for Fiction, and her most recent novel Swing Time was longlisted for the 2017 Man Booker Prize. As if that were not enough, Zadie Smith is equally well-known for her essays, for her writings as a public intellectual. The author of two essay collections, Changing My Mind and Feel Free, Feel Free won the National Book Critics Circle Award for Criticism in 2018. Sadie Smith has served as the new books reviewer for Harper's Magazine, has been a frequent contributor to the New York Review of Books, and is currently a tenured professor of fiction at New York University and a member of the American Academy of Arts and Letters. Sadie Smith is here today to talk about her new book, Grand Union, her debut short story collection, which has received starred reviews from Kirkus, Publishers Weekly, book list, and book page. Oprah Magazine says, Yet another kaleidoscopic display of her singular sophistication. Smith's compositions, rife with ambivalence, in love with ideas, witty and mordant, echo in the head long after the last word. As a whole, Grand Union stands as a glittering affirmation of Smith's virtuosity and range, and because she is such a generous and penetrating observer of the world, One keeps turning the pages and exclaiming with recognition. Booklist adds, fury, heartbreak, and drollery collide in masterfully crafted prose that ranges in effect from the exquisitely tragic lyricism of Catherine Mansfield to the precisely calibrated acid bath of Jamaica Kincaid as Smith demonstrates her unique prowess for elegant disquiet. Welcome to Between the Covers, Zadie Smith.
1: Thank you, David.
0: So in in your recent conversation with Lynn Neary on NPR, she brings up this notion of the short story having a certain shape, of it being like a polished gem. Mm. And you, you respond that for you, the short story, on the contrary, is a place of experimentation, and that perhaps this is because you are fundamentally an inconsistent person. And you've mentioned this inconsistency before, For instance, in your recent essay with the New York Review of Books, um, Fascinated to Presume in Defense of Fiction, you start with that same notion of an inconsistent self, and we see it in your admiration of other artists in your essays. For instance, the way you describe the life and music of Joni Mitchell as being one of discontinuity, or the writing of Philip Roth, to his credit, not being uh, a, a writing that aspired for a perfect vision. So if there was something or is something that's consistent in your work perhaps it's this engagement with inconsistency of self or a self-doubt about the nature of selfhood and i was hoping we could just start there with with yeah. your thoughts on on <laughs> selfhood as it relates to right. uh, writing
1: well it's interesting to think about consistency in my work i mean i the, the one i notice is time consciousness awareness of time and of like the inevitable end of time for individuals. Um, And I'm always struck, like sometimes people say to me that I'm too preoccupied with it or I'm too obsessed with it. Um, I I guess even from childhood I found uh, the inability of people to speak or think about the fact that their lives are finite kind of extraordinary. To me it is like the, the fundamental fact of existence and everything follows from that. You know How we choose to spend our attention, how we choose to spend our time, our ethics, our morality, those are all a function of death. So death is an incredible gift, but it doesn't stop it being, I understand, like a, a terror. It's a terror for me too. But uh, th- that's what kind of forms my idea of self, somebody in relation to death and, and a real self is someone who is aware of that fact.
0: I wonder if this being your first collection of stories, with your editor coming to you, and saying you have enough for a collection, Mm. but then seeing that some of your stories were not um, satisfying to you anymore, which then prompted you to write quite a few new stories. Yeah, that's what happened. That feels connected to time and also to a shifting of selfhood in a sense. And I I was just curious what that encounter was like, uh, encountering some stories that you are now dissatisfied with, prompting you to write new stories, and, and maybe you could articulate something about what you were going after in the new stories or hoping to succeed and and what you saw in the old stories that Um, you decided to leave out.
1: Right. I I think what struck me in the old stories was a a young person's um, attachment to, uh, I don't know, life as a plot, you know. You do believe that when you're younger. It feels like you're on an ever kind of, um, like like an arc that's bending towards justice or a trajectory that's always going up. Um, and I think maybe in middle age that occurs to most sane people anyway that that's not really the case so a lot of the stories seem to me a little pat a little formal but but I'm still you know I still love character and fullness and I do love the idea that people have a story of of their lives like in a story like Big Week I guess that's a in a way it's a meta story I know it seems like an old-fashioned story but it's a precisely about a man who thinks that his life has a story and is mm-hmm. always telling everybody the story of his life and is always thinking of himself as an example of redemption and i think a lot of people do that it's a way of getting through the day um but in that story i was thinking about how that can be so oppressive to others you know in this case this man's ex-wife who necessarily has a completely separate story a completely separate form of like miniature narcissism I guess one of our conflicts in life is when our little stories come up against other people's stories and we can't make them fit exactly. So I, I was just attracted to stories that allow for the multiplicity of, of story, you know, the fact that your version of the world is partial and is usually shot through with all kinds of, you know, self-deception or comforting notions. Um, I became attracted to that. And I was just reading a lot of fiction from the 60s, 70s, and being so struck at the excitement and kind of innovation that that was in that work and how things became, again, a lot more traditional, I think, in the 80s and 90s. Um, I, I just wanted to stretch the form a little.
0: You've talked about how when you sit down to write, your writerly sensibilities aren't really formed by the intentions that you have. Um, and maybe this goes back to uh, uh, some of the mystery of selfhood also that a lot of the way you write is is formed by your first encounters with r- reading when you were a child right and obviously you're not choosing all of those those books that you choose then but perhaps my my favorite formulation of yours regarding this was your response to James Woods when he wrote his takedown of what he called his hysterical fiction I really love how you said this. We cannot be all the writers all the time. We can only be who we are, which leads me to my second point. Writers do not write what they want, they write what they can. When I was 21, I wanted to write like Kafka, but unfortunately for me, I wrote like a script editor for The Simpsons who'd briefly joined a religious cult and then discovered Foucault, such as life. And th- this seems to suggest an, a notion of self. That while it might become fixed at some point um, is nevertheless uh, formed relationally and and somewhat right. by by chance
1: I think I just it 's my experience as a reader. I understand what James was saying, and I, I think I make the same mistake sometimes as a critic you're so frustrated with what's in front of you you want it to replace it with something else it doesn't mean a world of no judgments. I have very strong opinions about what is a good book, the good book in front of me and what is a bad book but as much as possible, and to be honest, I think James does do this most of the time, you have to meet the book where it, where it lives. You have to meet the book at the idea that this sensibility is this sensibility. The book in Norway is not written by the black man in Ghana. The book set in London is not written by, with an American consciousness. These are separate universes. And there isn't much point in critiquing a book in Norway for not being said in London or vice versa. That's the most stupid version of that. But some version of that sensibility you find in a lot of criticism these days. Yeah. Um, and to me, I, what I'm interested in is precisely this individual sensibility. Like if I'm reading a book about a group of people in a tiny village in Finland, it's this way of thinking that concerns me. I want to enter into it on its own terms. I don't want it to be something other than it is. Um so that's how I proceed as a reader I guess and in all these kind of debates I notice that maybe what's what's different about the way I think compared to the way a lot of thought goes on now is that I just accept by definition the idea that people are fundamentally limited <laughs> mm-hmm. limited and partial like the the religious version of that is that people are filled with sin and that's that's my experience of myself you know that I am a limited Person, It doesn't mean that you can't hope for, uh, you know, rightful behavior and ethics and all the rest of it. Um, but I don't, I suppose I don't hope for perfectibility, neither in people nor in novels. I try and, um, I don't know, just meet the human where he, she or they live.
0: In case you just tuned in, we're talking today to Zadie Smith about her first short story collection, Grand Union. Your father was... Uh, several decades older than your mother yeah and you've talked about the your sensibility being formed perhaps like a generation before some of your peers because of this age difference <laughs> that's possible yeah uh could you could you maybe touch on what some of those books were and then if you were able to time travel now and and swap in a book or two what I mean, what would some of those books be
1: i was on stage in brooklyn a few days ago in front of a huge crowd of brooklyn hipsters and i i was asked a question like this and and i said well you know my father was born in 1925 and the audience laughed and i realized they thought that was a joke wow. i was like no that's not a joke my father was born in 1925 and my grandfather was a victorian so it, it's a strange um gap so i guess i'm more in terms of the ideas that form me i i'm closer in age to people like amos and rushdie McEwen. our fathers were the same age even though i'm 30 years or 25 years younger than them. Um, So, uh, I mean, I think the the fundamental thing that formed that generation's thinking and and had some effect on mine is the Second World War, which was a close thing. It was close enough for my father to have been involved in it, wounded in it. Um, And that that was the event, I suppose, that was largest on my consciousness and, and the books that came out of it. Which were in some way sometimes existentially despairing, like even the funny ones like Salinger, you know that they come from a very dark place, an awareness of um, you know evil, even though it's not it 's not said that way on the left, there was an awareness of the worst that humans can do to each other, um, so things like Kafka are very important to me. Um, more levy like, I guess, <laughs> slightly heavy stuff. And then I was also being taught in an English school system, so I was reading a lot of Victorians, you know, and that was the light entertainment, was, was the Victorian novel. Um, the thing I miss now as an adult, but I've been a long time trying to make up for it, is, I suppose, the continent, uh, both Europe and, then again, um, the African continent. These were like two aporias in my reading, apart from the f- few books that squeeze their way through, like Chinua Achebe. I didn't have much access to African writing. I knew something about American diaspora writing, um, but but that was a big gap, because it was a kind of explanatory gap of, like, where where does the wider culture of my family come from? Why this music? Why these rhythms? Why do we speak this way? Why do we think this way about children or family? Or I think... Uh, There was quite a big absence there, which I would have been a different writer if it was filled earlier. But, you know, that's what being an adult is for, filling Mm. in (laughs) gaps.
0: Well, in in one of your essays, you say that if you have one great skill as a writer, it's voices or rendering dialogue of others. Yeah. And I wanted to talk about that in relationship to the story of Escape from New York. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Not only because everyone should listen to you reading it on the New Yorker podcast where you actually do these wonderful voices. But it's a story whose characters are not only very much not you, but also characters that come with a lot, or we as readers come right. with a lot of association for them. It's it's about the, or it renders the ap- apocryphal account of Elizabeth Taylor Mar- Marlon Brando and Michael Jackson fleeing New York by car after the terrorist attack of 9-11. And you do this great comic job of rendering them, Fleeing, um, and and there are people who you describe to Deborah Triesman as fictional in texture, even though they're real, right. real people. And it feels like it's this tension between the fiction and the real of their lives that is the engine of this story.
1: I right. mean, um, you, you know, there's a lot of people who read that story who have no idea it's about Michael Jackson and and uh, Elizabeth Taylor and Marlon Brando, which must be a very strange reading experience. But yeah, interests me. That is interesting. Yeah.
0: <laughs> it might, I wonder if that's generational right. and time-specific. Right.
1: Um, to me, that, I've always been interested in celebrities. It's an, a shameful admission, but I have to recognize it, even as a child. It, it concerned me a certain kind, which was more common in the 80s, Is almost doesn't exist now, but um, I- icons or the idea of the, the superhuman, which I was kind of uh, always... Interested in and always uh, simultaneously repelled by. That's the best way I can put it. Because I don't believe that there is such a thing as a superhuman. I don't believe that anybody is beyond the human or, by the way, beneath the human. So I, I guess one of the things that interests me about those three is that in the contemporary mindset, uh, they're famous and so deserve no sympathy and no interest. But I i think... there's. The argument always has to be made the other way around. If you invent a category as a culture which allows you not to have interest in that category, you have made yourself less than human. Mm. That's what actually happens. I feel the same way about putting a Lexa in your house and demanding it to do things. If you you believe there is such a thing that can act for you like a servant or a slave, you become a master. That's not a very appealing thing to become. Mm. And... uh, That's what interests me about those three. I mean, Michael in particular, when I was a child, I knew he was monstrous, not for the reasons we know he's monstrous now. For me, when I was a child, the monstrousness was what he was doing to himself physically in the name of self-hate and internalised racism. I knew he was monstrous, but I never thought he was beneath pity or mercy. I felt incredibly sorry for him throughout my childhood at the same time as being incredibly angry at him for humiliating... Me and all the people who loved him and f- experienced him as a, a black icon. So it was a mixture of anger and uh, incredible pity because it was like a visual expression of pain. Like it, it was like, this is what it's like at the extreme end to be a black American, to exist in this incredibly contradictory, racist society. He was embodying it and it was horrific to see. So you had, you felt this. Mer- Mercy, pity and fury simultaneously. But I never thought he was um, less than a human. I just never I never bought that about the idea of celebrity. I, I think it's a projection on the t- terms of the rest of us. And it's an, it's a kind of tool that we use to have a certain kind of emotion about another, but it's not real. So it just interested me to write about these three people who almost seem to have given up the hope of being human. I mean, once you can't go outside... Once you can't walk down the street, uh, I don't know whose fantasy that is, but it's a a living hell, (laughs) as (laughs) evidenced by everybody to whom it happens. Even if they desired it with all their hearts, they quickly realise that it's it's no freedom, it's unfreedom. So I I wanted to write about three people who consider themselves exceptional, who are considered exceptional by the culture, who find themselves in a moment of um, uh, horror existentially no different from anybody else because maybe it's only in those moments that we fully recognize these hierarchies as, uh, you know, insane.
0: That's what was so moving about the story, I thought, was New York is also a mythical place as right. much as a real place and they're escaping the mythos of New York, but also in a crappy car yeah. getting fast food is where he, Michael Jackson's able to escape the myth of himself.
1: I mean, yeah, it's fine. was an obscene idea, right, that only in horror could he become a human for a moment. but um
0: Well, it's, it's... I, I wanted to ask you about that, this idea of the fictional texture of the real and him becoming real in a different way. I, I wanted to ask about you and the quote-unquote real you oh, in, yeah. in relationship to your writing, which is a topic that comes up a lot in your nonfiction, but also I think in the new collection, Grand Union, where you you, you tempt us or you invite us to conflate the real you with your characters by... Dropping these autobiographical details
1: here and there. Yeah, yeah. I guess it's my lipstick. Those are my shoes, etc. I don't. I I couldn't really have a conscious theory of it. It's like using yourself as a tool, like you're doing an essay, using yourself. You you are the greatest uh, example you have in front of you, the closest. Everything else about other people is guesswork, and you can't be sure you can't always be sure about yourself either, but you have yourself there as like behavioral evidence. Um, And I I think I like playing with it as a rhetorical device. I I am very aware that there's a kind of innocence in readers, which which seems to grow every day about the I, as if you could say I and be there on the page. But it's just a rhetorical device, you know, one amongst many. It's powerful because it's got full of pathos. If I say to you, I this really happened to me, I really feel this, there's you're kind of pushed to a to feel with me. But it's in my my feeling is that that subject position is in no way definitive. I don't I don't want it. I don't want the subject position which says, Because I'm in this body, because I am this particular person, because I have felt something, you have to agree. To me, whether it's fiction or non fiction Rhetoric has three parts. It's pathos and logos and ethos. There has to be the rational, there has to be the ethical, and the personal is a part of it. But to me, it's a very small part. Hmm. For other writers, I think it's much stronger. But I don't want to win an argument because I'm me. I want to win an argument because I made the argument.
0: (laughs) You came to first-person writing relatively late. Right. And we do have an eye that floats through Grand Union um maybe not a consistent i mm-hmm. but it, it, you didn't go to the first person for a long time thinking that you wouldn't find freedom there is it this tension that you're describing uh, or your insistence that the i isn't uh, consistent or authentic necessarily that allows you the freedom like when you when you write about Philip Roth and and Alexander Portnoy right. and how he is Philip Roth, and he's completely not Philip Roth at the same right. time. It's that sort of uh, double consciousness around around the persona.
1: I think it's it's just a habit of novelists to make this process explicit. I think people do it all the time. I don't think that I that appears on Twitter or in the blogs or even in your email is wholly consistent with the self that you are. All these things are performance at various levels. I guess what I like about fiction is is it makes explicit this process it doesn't naturalize it It doesn't pretend that it's real it says hello i'm lying (laughs) hello i'm lying in all these interesting ways um and because i'm lying in a hypothetical space um the damage is limited Hmm. these aren't real people i didn't really swear at that person i didn't really touch them this is not really happening of course prose has power writing has power it can push people to do things it can change their minds. But it is still some distance from the world of things and objects and people, you know? Um,
0: I love how you, you put it in in writing your, your remembrance of Roth. You say literature for me is precisely the ambivalent space in which impossible identities are made possible, both for their author and their characters. Right. And this idea of an impossible identity brings me back at least to the, the mystery of selfhood and also the mystery of writing right. uh, and how they're linked
1: I think, I mean this generation is all over that idea, like one of the ideas which impressed me most of their many ideas is the non-binary idea because that, that, is, a, that is a fictional idea, right, in part like if you're being offered from a very young age two categories, neither of which seem to f- formally express yourself and they've come up with a way of expressing that ambivalence as a citizen, which is kind of striking to me, right? But um, fiction is a place where those kind of identities that um, cannot be expressed by second-hand categories that are given to you from birth are allowed to be, you know, they're allowed to thrive. And uh, I get to be a lot of different selves in my fiction, something which gives me a lot of pleasure and a feeling of freedom. Um, whether the reader shares that, I don't know. But that—that's the hope, right? That you open up a little space in which not only you but others can play too. Well, I, I loved
0: when you said that you, as a mixed race British Jamaican woman, felt closest to the character in the Autograph Man, as in terms of self. Right. So the protagonist of the Autograph Man is a man, right. uh, Chinese and Jewish, and that probably surprising to your your readers oh, you might f- find that that character is the one you've rendered closest to who you feel
1: yeah to me sensibility is a mysterious matter um, i've had from the very beginning i've had people come to me and say you know uh, a white guy will come to me and say uh, the only character i liked in white teeth was archie or a black woman will come to me and say uh, white teeth was fine but i only really liked clara and I'm always fascinated by that kind of reading. It's very direct, right? They're just looking for themselves. Everything else is like, oh, God, go away. <laughs> who are all these people? Yeah. And I've so many times I've talked to readers who would rather a novel just about Irie or they just rather hear about Kiki in On Beauty and why is Howard there? And So I, I understand that emotion, but I have to say it, is, it isn't mine. I um, I think when people assume a connection between author, they assume both too much and too little. You know, just because I look like a character doesn't mean they're me. There's a lot of me and Howard. There's also a lot of me and Kiki and Irie and Clara, the people who are more physically like me. Um, but uh, there's so much, many parts of a person that if you try to express them in public, um, it would be hard. You know, the little bits of you that come out all day long. I, I feel it particularly with music. If you're listening to it, if a Walkman walking down the street, different voices come on in your head, and I and I become them physically. Like one minute it's Kendrick, I'm, I swagger differently, I walk differently, I have a whole different attitude to the street. Another minute, it's Billy Holiday. I have a completely different attitude, different way of walking. I become perhaps more feminine when Billy's on, more masculine when I'm listening to Kendrick. These are the realities of people's lives. It's much more fluid than is suggested, you know? Mm. Um, and in Alex Lee, uh, you know, he's more like a writer, perhaps, than anybody else in, in all of the books. So I have a fondness for him. Um, but the self that I am, whatever self I'm meant to be, is spread widely, but it, but I guess the thing which people don't understand is that it doesn't mean confusion. I'm not confused. I'm, as a citizen of the world, I'm a black woman, a black British woman. Nothing is more obvious to me day and night in my life. Um, it's not an either-or situation. It's either-and. I, I have a feeling for different types of people in my fiction, um, and it's my joy to have that feeling.
0: Well, I did want to talk about how your writing in general and also in Grand Union faces outward towards the other and and also this idea that you could discover yourself in doing so. Right. Um, so Grand Union, um, the stories take place in London, New York, Cambridge, Poland, Paris, Spain, in the past, in the present, and in the future. And the narrators are male, female, straight, gay, right. black, white, mixed race, Irish, Chinese, mm-hmm. And I kind of wanted to talk about this in relationship to the, the current literary moment and your most recent essay, Fascinated to Presume in Defense of Fiction. M- many years ago, when I had Claudia Rankin on the show, we, we talked about what she calls the racial imaginary. And she noted both that white people rarely engaged with race in their fiction mm-hmm. and that when they did, they almost never did so while staying in their white bodies, but imagined themselves as black or as whatever other people other than white people. And as a means to make whiteness as a racialized existence more visible, she hoped more writers would ask themselves the motivations behind why they wanted to leave their identities in their writing. Absolutely. Um, Whether something was not being written and not being spoken when the same people were imagining themselves as the same sorts of others Um, over and over again.
1: Well, I mean, ta makes the same point. I, I like his version of it when he's talking about the N-word in hip-hop. He talks about the idea that w- white people might have to deal with the idea of something not being for them. <laughs> that this word, which has a complicated history in black culture and black history, is one of the things that is not for them. And that might be an e- an interesting exercise to discover what it feels like for things not to be for you, which is a very common experience for African-Americans in this country. <laughs> that yeah, might be a useful, a teaching moment, as we say in America. Um, and I don't disagree with Claudia, but I don't um, believe there are there can be fixed um, admonitions to writers of any kind. And I would put it another way that I am an outward facing writer. I was born that way. But I have no uh, co- complaint or argument with the inward facing writer. I think of someone like Rachel Cusk is a really good example. Um, someone who's self is very solid and whose fictional uh, wonderings in the world are about absolutely Claudia's point of a very clear separation between myself and everybody else. Usually a slightly judgmental one though in this distance. But the difference I think is that I make no attack on that kind of fiction. I think it's important. I think literature is a wide church. I love those books by Rachel. The problem is that the attack is on our side of the church. There are outward-facing writers. There are people with these ambivalent sense of self who always have been like that. All actors fall into this category, as far as I can tell, every single one of them. And you can argue that it's a psychological quirk or a product of their childhood or unfortunate or inappropriate, but it is a form of art um, that has its own joys, its own pleasures. It is not um, the voice of the inward. It is not the barricading of the self which in many situations needs to be done. That separation needs to be clear. My argument in that piece was not that uh, this outward-facing fiction is in any way superior or, uh, you know, about this wonderful empathy. Aren't we all wonderful people? I don't believe that. I say it is a, a type of fiction and a type of being in the world that also should have its right to exist. Yeah. You know, and it doesn't... It There are versions of it that are you know, if you want to use that word, colonial in spirit, um, I can think of... I mean, I actually love Updike as a writer, but his novel Terrorist is a good example of a a completely, uh, you know, mistaken attempt to enter into a consciousness in which he... he, I mean, the bottom line is he did it badly. Then there are the Confessions of Nat Turner, which I think is much better done. Neither are perfect. One of them is very bad. But I don't... um, If you mean... I, if Claudia means the argument that there should be a line saying this must not be done, I cannot, I can't imagine such a line in fiction. I can't imagine any writers would want it really, because of course if I block your access to me, you block my access to you. Yeah. And uh, I, I think a lot of black writers want access into into the imaginary of America. And if we're contained, if by containing others we contain ourselves, uh, a lot is lost. Um, So it's absolutely every writer's priority, as I think I said in the piece, to be concerned with what they consider to be their people and their patch. It is also uh, the right of the outward-facing writer to be curious.
0: In case you just tuned in, we're talking today to Zadie Smith about her first short story collection, Grand Union. Well, it's interesting, I was just recently watching the Toni Morrison documentary. Have you seen it?
1: No, not yet. I really want to. What was interesting
0: about the documentary, I thought, was when she talks about teaching, she says that she um, wants to shake people out of their tendency to be autobiographical when they write. And
1: And, she wasn't autobiographical. That's what I mean about assuming too much and too little.
0: And she said in her first exercise, she said was, let's all imagine we are a Mexican waitress. Right. And uh, presuming there's not Mexican waitresses in the classroom, she was picking that as an arbitrary... Version, But even if you're going to end up writing autobiographically, she said, let's start with, with leaping outside of ourselves.
1: I think this is It's so funny to me that a lot of these writers are becoming kind of secular, secular saints, Baldwin and Morrison, both. I am a great reader of both those writers that have been for a long time. And from what I hear, sometimes the way they're described, I don't recognize the writer. I don't recognize the writer of The Bluest Eye, who specifically said, I am writing myself into the mind of this child who is not me. I have never wanted blue eyes. That is not my family. My family was in no way so painful or debased. She came from a completely different background. And the bluest eye is filled with literal sympathy for the devil. There is a paedophile character who takes up a large part of that book, which Tony makes a great effort to imagine how he became such a man and why. There are the most extraordinary leaps of sympathy into other bodies, other minds, other possibilities, I sometimes I wonder whether these books are being written. I'm so sorry, being read properly, or just faintly remembered, or tweeted about without being remembered. But to read Toni Morrison again, and which I've been doing a lot recently since she died, is really to be shocked at uh, an incredible acts of presumption, um, which to me while well, marvelous and fictionally inspired. She is really the great 20th century American genius of letters, and. Uh, Reading her again, it would be use, is useful, I think, for students particularly.
0: Well, what I what I particularly loved about your latest piece in defense of fiction was the tone, and not starting from a place of distrust when somebody is is writing as other. Uh, we, for instance, when you're describing Tolstoy and saying how grateful you are for the character of Anna, Anna Karenina, right. but also acknowledging that you can see his masculine point of view leak through at times in the way that he writes. But the failure isn't, or the, um, or seeing that isn't in any way um, tarnishing your your gratitude for the literary creation.
1: It it might color it, but I'm, you know, an adult can make, uh, make, uh, how do you say, gradations. (laughs) An adult can say, I like this, but I don't like this. This part of the book is wonderful, not so much this. But that's the job of an adult, you know, an adult reader. And I also think, in, in terms of distrust, again, I, I was thinking about, um, I was reading that ta essay about Obama, and where he says the thing which struck him about Obama is that he trusted white people, something that ta he says, had never thought about doing. So that is, um, you cannot take away from somebody's experience of America. I don't uh, take one moment's uh, credence or doubt from that as a real lived subject position. I also think it's sometimes important for Americans to realise that we are not all Americans and we have different subject positions, different uh, hang-ups, different racial histories um, which are equally uh, real, you know. Um, But I, I think the suspicion of the other is fair when the other has shown no sign of comprehension or love or compassion for you. You know, there's only a certain amount of times that you can keep coming to the other and saying, oh, by the way, I'm a human as you are. And I I am not an American, but I am, I'm a partial student of American history. And I, I don't, I cannot blame any, uh, you know, minority American for saying enough, you know, yeah. because there's only so many times you can go to the well and not get water.
0: So it's sort of holding that complexity of, of the un- understanding that there was going to be distrust about writing across difference, yes, but is. also the, the essentialness of writing right. across There's
1: it. There's going to be distrust, particularly in this moment, particularly when the greatest narrative of all, the narrative of the state, is one of the most perverse, fantastical, sick stories that America has ever told about himself, itself. I mean, I don't think there, there are a few... He has few competitors unless you go to the very early days of the founding of democracy in the midst of slavery, so it just doesn't surprise me that kind of distrust when the when the formal story the state story is so uh, corrupt, all stories are poisoned
0: well can we take this this distrust and suspicion of writing across difference and and also look at the way you engage with? questions of social media and selfhood and technology in grand union, particularly in your story now more than ever, which takes place in a dystopian alternate reality. And it feels like a parable about our contemporary moment and about a certain consistency of self that's demanded in certain, um, social media, right. techno technological spaces, but it's also a, um, a, a piece that's really unusually constructed a futuristic piece, perhaps, but also one that's a meditation on a film from the past can Can you talk a little bit about now more than ever and and what you're interrogating around selfhood and 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 these technologies that a lot of us use without really thinking about how they're right. they're affecting us?
1: I mean, I wrote that piece as a gut instinct the way I wrote the Facebook piece really. Both were coming from an existentialist point of view, which I'd begun to realise at the age of 43 is basically what I am, <laughs> or, the, or the philosophy that means most to me. I, I think when I wrote that story, I was only, like, a tiny bit way through this dawning understanding of what the technology actually is. So, to me, that story is fine, but mild... <laughs> Because the dystopia is here. And it's not about, um, you know, people being mean online. It's about the total co-opting of human agency and free will. People being mean online is like one tiny corner of the kingdom that has been created around us. So it's fine as far as it goes, but I, I think, you know, in 10, 20 years, when people look back on the fiction of this era and the journalism of this era, we will all be amazed at the complete uh, absence of understanding of the moment we were in. Like, mm. it is comical. And once you start reading, books about how this technology actually works and what it was designed for and how it's expanding and what your smart home is about and what it's for, it's very hard to read the newspaper because it's not the journalist's fault. It's not any of our faults. We are like innocents in front of a technology that we think we are all over because we (laughs) hold it in our hand and we press buttons. And you see people in every cafe. I see it in Portland. I see it in New York. Young people who think they're some kind of like tech geniuses, um, when what it's happening is a mass response to s- stimuli, and your participation in the biggest behavioural modification experiment of all time. So uh, I am just an innocent trying to make myself aware. Reading in areas which are not my natural areas. I have no um, technological background, no math background. But I think it is the responsibility of every citizen, particularly the young, to do your best to understand what it is you have in your pocket and what it is you just bought on Amazon and switched on in your house and what your public school is encouraging you to put on your children. I mean, I'm ending up sounding like a tin hat (laughs) mad person, but the situation is mad. Well,
0: it's interesting because it reminds me, these science fiction stories that engage with technology in this book, Remind me of your writings about Ballard.
1: Right. and oh, He was so ahead of the curve. It's, but, I wish he was still here.
0: But the way he described Crash as being the first novel of um, that's the describes the pornography of technology.
1: And the modification of the person to fit the car. That was his whole argument. Yeah. We spent 30 years wondering whether machines will become like humans. Dude, no. I mean, maybe they will. It's kind of irrelevant. What's happening much faster is that we are becoming machines and not even complicated ones, simple ones. Yeah one so easily nudged, moved, manipulated, we'd been looking in the wrong direction. And Ballard was always looking in the right direction. He understood. And uh, it's taken me a really long time, as I think it takes all, like, lame humanists to understand, to not bow down like a coward in front of technological inevitabilism. Everybody's telling you, it's great, it's the future, get with the future, and yet you look all around you with your human eyes... And you know what you're seeing is dystopic, but you keep on telling yourself, oh, they must be right, because they're billionaires and they must know what they're doing. And, but I, I mean, the most beautiful line in all these books I've been reading, it strikes me again and again, is that when Zuckerberg said, you know, if you've got nothing to hide, you've got nothing to worry about, there's a beautiful line of Zuboff where she says, if you've got nothing to hide, you're not a human. That's mm. what you are. Only robots have nothing to hide, humans have something to hide their privacy, their intimacy, their lives, their children from continual surveillance. We have something to hide. That's, that's sacred, that bit of you that isn't in the public zone, that isn't offered to the public for approval or correction. That's what being a human is. Um, and, uh, I mean, what's fiction's role in this? Like, we are so irrelevant, it's beyond It's beyond belief. But I, I do think... Well, I was reading my colleague Jonathan Lethem's piece in the New York Review about Snowden... That maybe I said to Jonathan after I read it, maybe the one thing that our generation can do, and I do consider our generation to be ruinous, basically, to the environment, to the political arena, is that with our pre um internet sad old man and woman brains, we can try and <laughs> explain as clearly as possible what that smart refrigerator in your house means, what it means to wear a Fitbit. What it means to submit your children to an algorithm, what it means to live inside an algorithm, I think that's the last crappy task we have in front of us, even if nobody cares or listens, at least it's something.
0: I, I wish we had more more time, but um, because we don't, and I, I think this will be a little bit of a strange pivot, but maybe we can pivot to to art that you love. Yeah I'd love to hear you talk about the epigraph from Frank O 'Hara. Oh, yeah. wh- why it's why it's there, and maybe you could read the poem as a way to end. Yeah, the, if you have it. I do as mm-hmm. a way to end the conversation sure. today. So, um, how can anyone fail to be? Is the line that you pulled out of the poem for um, the opening of Grand Union? How, how do you see that in relationship to to these stories?
1: You know, I I've read a lot of uh, I've been reading a lot of Kierkegaard, and his opinion was that most of us failed to be most of the time and he wasn't living in a world where you could get on a plane and watch an adult, sentient man play Candy Crush for four and a half hours without pause. In this new like, techno-utopia, not meant to ever judge, right? Everybody's, you've got to say, everybody's happy doing their own thing and but again, I think it's a, we have to try and be the adults in the room and ask ourselves, is it worthy of a human, an adult human, with all our amazing capacities, our minds, our souls, as I believe we have, our feelings, our ability to act in the world and will in the world, to submit our will to Candy Crush for four and a half hours, or to whatever little bright shiny thing that they're pushing you through the maze day after day. Is is it worthy of a human to be under the uh, control of these people and also to allow for their rhetoric which is often libertarian right I was just reading about Jeff Bezos saying shouldn't have the government in the bedroom or in the school or in the family but it's okay for Alexa it's okay for Echo not the government but Jeff Bezos yeah. uh, it's, it's an extraordinary upside down rhetorical argument um, and I, I don't think, I mean, the thing I f- find worrying is that if we put all the, the emphasis on uh, personal morality, do you have a phone, do you use Amazon, blah, 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 we'll lose the argument that way because everybody gets incredibly guilty and defensive and it's like, well, I need, them. so do I. Everybody does, you feel bad, you feel like a shitty person, et cetera, et cetera. I think it needs to be seen from the broadest view in terms of, and the reason this is a novelist's business, by the way, I think is because it's about will. My job is is about talking to humans and having a human relationship with another human. Writing is about willing too. and all humans, whether they're writers or not, have that incredible capacity to will and to think and and to watch it being uh, sold off and denigrated, or even, in Zuckerberg's case, acting as if it doesn't exist, as if it's insignificant. We know what's best for you. We know how your cars should drive, where you should go, what you should buy. It, anybody who feared big government, um, you know, this, this is a a whole other kind of instrument in your life. And that, to me, is failing to be. Um, and it's, it's a manipulation. There's, all, of course, all loads of intimate ways you can fail to be as well, you know, as a person, with your family, your friends, your lovers, etc. But it, the whole operation gets much harder when even your will isn't your own. This is Frank O'Hara, yesterday down at the canal. You say that everything is very simple and interesting. It makes me feel very wistful, like reading a great Russian novel does. I am terribly bored. Sometimes it is like seeing a bad movie. Other days, more often, it's like having an acute disease of the kidney. God knows it has nothing to do with the heart, nothing to do with people more interesting than myself. Yak, yak. That's an amusing thought. How can anyone be more amusing than oneself? How can anyone fail to be? Can I borrow your 45? I only need one bullet, preferably silver. If you can't be interesting, at least you can be a legend. But I hate all that crap.
0: We're talking today to Zadie Smith, the author of Grand Union. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naaman, your host. Today's program was recorded at the studios of KBOO, volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength community radio from Portland, Oregon, found at KBOO.fm. If you appreciated today's show, consider becoming a Between the Covers supporter. There are many patron gifts available, and you can also subscribe to the bonus audio archive, which includes... Supplemental material by Ted Chang, Long Longsoldier, Marlon James, Herman Maria Machado, Forrest Gander, Diane Williams, and others. All this can be found at patreoncom between the covers. Finally, I'd like to thank Imre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating the outro. Their album, Imre Lodbrog, A e Sapatita Me, can be found on iTunes, and Barbara Browning's Trove of Ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Barbara Brown.